Mr. John Armstrong needs no introduction. Everyone is quite familiar with him. Hello, John. Thank you for taking time to talk to me today. Sure, Lynn. Many times I have talked to you on the phone or you've called me about some little item that you were researching. And I thought, oh, I should have recorded that phone call. I should have recorded it. And I wanted to talk to you just a bit since we just, we met earlier in the year. And I recorded you where you were discussing your last article, which turned out to be very long and very informative and I want to just give an overview for people who may have not read that, and I wanted to steer people to your good website, which is harveyandlee.net. And you have just all these articles, all this research. Of course, the book, Harvey and Lee, How the CIA Framed Oswald by John Armstrong, is available there still. And I just wanted to, you know, talk for just a fair bit of, you know, a little bit of time just to say your website is there. You have many articles and the latest one you did, which featured, I think, revelations of your work on Westbrook and Croy, which is just unparalleled. And the more you dig into that, uh, you, you know, even someone who was saying, I'm not sure what's going on here, you go, John's on to something. Now, he's on to something there. And that's kind of why I just wanted to go, you know, thank you. Many people emailed me in and said, thanks for having John on, talking to him, and the last... I split up our last interview into three sections because it was so long. What are you working on now is what I should say, because you've done such great work in the past. Well, you talk about you and I talking and you failing to record certain things that you wish you would have recorded. You know, I go through that all the time. I'll see a document, say at the National Archives, say reading the 26 volumes or online something. And I think, wow, that's interesting. I don't record it. And a month later, two months later, a year later, I should have recorded it. You know, th- that's just human nature. Th- there are many, many documents that I have seen that I should have recorded, but I didn't. And some of that is just me. M- maybe, for example, I'm in Dallas, Texas, at the library, reading the 26 volumes. Or going Actually, in Dallas, I was going through the microfilm, the uh, 24 rolls of microfilm, and it's not easy to get those documents printed. So you just kind of like only print the real, what you think is important documents. And there's so many times when we've read things that are just a a passage and they mean nothing to most people, including me. 
And later on, when you find a few more bits of information, it's like, oh, that's how that ties together. And then you go back and try and find that item, that document, and it's like, oh, my God. (laughs) So, you know, I think everywhere I've been and everything I've done, people I've interviewed, I've forgotten to ask certain very important questions. I mean, I interviewed Dr. Kirian. There are a few questions later that I should have asked Dr. Kirian, but I didn't. And now, of course, he's passed on. Uh, The same thing with Anita Zeiger. When I interviewed Anita in uh, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, Palmer McBride, I visited him at his home in California, and then he moved to Winnetka, California. And, you know, we spent many days, many afternoons together, having lunch, watching TV at his house. And even today, there are questions that I should have asked him. And these, these things come up just by reliving, you know, your, your, your thinking, reliving your, what you're trying to put down in writing and show what happened. So don't feel bad if you're not recording every single word we talk about. Oh, no, it's like that. Sometimes you'll call me and I'm driving or, or, you know, we'll just talk. But the last article that you said, it's, and I'm looking for it on your the prearranged murder of Oswald, but I'm not, is that, the prearranged murder is into sections, part one, two, three, four, and five, and, and is that done by your webmaster, uh, Jim Hargrove? No, I write every word to these things. Oh, yeah, right, but when I got it, it oh, was I all see, one I big see. piece okay, of paper. No, yeah. no, 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 what, look, I put five parts on the website, and you and I recorded everything at one time. And then you decided to break it down into three parts instead of five parts. You probably didn't know that my original manuscript on the internet was five parts. And maybe you wouldn't have wanted to do a one part thing five consecutive weeks. Maybe you just decided three segments for an hour and a half each at each is, is better. That's good. Well, first of all, everyone should go to Harvey and Lena net and you can read through there and plus you can use uh, search searchable when you listen to someone on the on the radio you hear something interesting and then you have to go back now where did he say that what was the name of that document what was that article so it's so good that all your articles are there and your research and your book is it still available Lynn out of out of the original you know several thousand cut four thousand copies that I printed uh, I think I've got less than a hundred copies of the book left Okay, so it's still available for uh, anyone interested and well worth it. Another thing that I, I say this every time we talk, but it really impresses me because of a lot of people that do research here and argue. You say to me, generally off the top, look, here's my work, but if you find anything that's wrong, please tell me. I want to be corrected. I don't want to be wrong. So if you find anything wrong, just tell me. That That's got me hooked looking into your research because I thought, well, he, he's really interested. And, you know, if anything's incorrect, just just tell him. And it's well, so... for example, that, that's a good point, Lynn. For example, I've been doing this research for over 30 years. And when I first started out, I wrote my book after 10 years. So since that time, I've done a lot of additional research. And when I say additional research, that doesn't mean everything new. That means a bit added here, a bit added there, a large part here, a large part there on virtually everything that I've looked at, Oswald learning to speak Russian or being taught and so on and so forth. You know, when you start off that, you you have no idea where he could have learned Russian. And as you go through it, you learn, I I talked to people in the military who were with Oswald in Japan, Uh, Don Bullock, 
or Zach Stout in Kansas. And these people were with Oswald every single day. And like I asked Zach, I said, Zach, did uh, Oswald ever read or speak Russian? And he laughed. And he, he said, who makes up these stories? And I said, well, gosh, what do you mean? And he said, look, we were on maneuvers in the South China Sea most of the time. We had a backpack. That's all. Nobody had a room for a book or let alone a record player or anything. And no, he never spoke a word of Russian. And then I talked to Don Bullock, who was in uh, New Jersey, and he's been telling people for years that the Oswald that was accused of killing Kennedy was not the man that he was in the Marines with in Japan. I mean, Don, I knew Don for several years before he passed away. And he said Oswald was three to four inches taller than the one he knew in Japan and weighed 20, 30 pounds more than the guy on TV. And, you know, he, he had been telling people that for years and nobody listens to him. So, you know, it's, it's people like this. We, we visited Richard Sear, who was with Oswald in Japan. In fact, Richard Sear was with Oswald when uh, uh, Martin Schran was, uh, was shot or discharged his shotgun and killed himself. And, you know, Richard Sear said the same thing. I mean, when you talk to these people who were with Oswald on a day-to-day basis, you, you begin to form an opinion as to what was happening, what was being withheld from the public and so on. But for example... The Warren Commission focuses on Oswald in California, not Japan. And the reason they don't focus on Oswald in Japan, this was not the man accused of killing Kennedy. The Oswald in Japan didn't speak Russian, got in fights, got drunk. That's not the short, thin Harvey, not even close. So you, you start to understand uh, how this whole thing progressed when you, you know, put your research together, try and make sense of new things that you read and, and try to understand. Now, was there a little tidbit of information that really got you on the trail of, of these two guys, Westbrook and Croy? The further you look into it, for me, it's really uncomfortable. It's like, oh, these guys are really part of something here. They're not just haphazard Dallas policeman that a guy meets his girlfriend and goes out for barbecue. And I mean, I mean so many things are just unbelievable that flags go up. Was there something in particular that, that really caught your attention? Well, okay. For, for example, I, I'd like to give you a little history of some of my thoughts over the past 30 years. When I started getting into this thing, I could not understand the height differences in Oswald. People would say he's, you know, five foot eight, five foot nine, five foot 11. He's, you know, 160, 170 pounds. No, he's 130 pounds. That didn't make a whole lot of sense. But then again, you know, people's weight and height can change as they get older. But when I read the 26 volumes and I read Commission Exhibit 1386, which was the statement of Paul McBride to the U.S. Air Force and then to the FBI about he working with Oswald at the Pfister Dental Laboratory for the better part of a year, when the Warren Commission tells us he was in Japan at the same time, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty striking. So when I read that, it's like, I've got to find the bride. I've got to talk to him. I've got to find out what's going on. And then you read other things. And all I've really done is take documents that I have found. For example, on the left side, put documents for a short, skinny Oswald. On the right side, put documents for a larger, bigger Oswald that was, you know, so on and so forth. You come to McBride, what have you got? You got an Oswald in Japan and an Oswald at the Pfister Dental Laboratory in New Orleans. Wow. Okay. The, the point that people miss, that they really miss it. Most people agree that there were multiple Oswalds showing up in the months preceding the Kennedy assassination. 
in my view, the, the by far, by far, hands down, the most important impersonation of Oswald was done when Oswald, uh, on Labor Day weekend in 1963, L- Lee Oswald, the taller husky one, visits Robert McEwen at his home in Kima, Texas, and wants to buy rifles from McEwen. All right. That's interesting because uh, Harvey and Marina and their young daughter, uh, well, they got two young daughters at this point, they were at Lake Pontchartrain for the Labor Day weekend. So you've got Oswald at Lake Pontchartrain, and you've got Oswald in Kima, Texas. But the most important thing, the absolute most important thing was Kima, Texas, because Robert McEwen, when I tell you this, it's going to be hard to swallow. It's going to be hard to imagine, but it happened. Robert McEwen knew Castro in the early 1950s, knowing when Castro went to jail in Cuba, started running guns. He'd buy guns under, you know, working for the CIA. He would buy guns, ship them to Castro. Jack Ruby bought guns, shipped them to Castro. This went on for a long time. Castro and McEwen got to be so close that they were like, I won't say like brothers, but when Castro took over Cuba and he took, he flew to New York to give a speech before the, um, what was it, the United Nations. He took his plane and he flew directly to Houston. And he met McEwen. And the Houston Chronicle, on the front page of the newspaper, has a picture of Castro with his arms around McEwen. I mean, these guys were close. But yet you've got Lee Oswald trying to buy rifles from McEwen two months before the assassination. That is just absolutely mind-boggling. Because if McEwen McEwen was on probation uh, for running rifles, if Oswald would have been able to buy rifles from McEwen, then those rifles would have absolutely appeared on the sixth floor of the book depository. They would have traced it back to McEwen, traced it back to Castro. My God, we might have had a war with Cuba. So anyway, that's, that's, that's why I think Robert McEwen is the most important. Two Oswalds with Robert McEwen, one of them trying to buy the rifles, is the most important impersonization of Harvey that there is. Yeah, uh, among so many, but but that's it. Oh, there's lots. Of, yeah, there's lots of it. None even come close to that one. I mean, sure, you can shoot at the rifle range. Sure, you can buy a car. You know, all these things. Uh, you can go down to the Statler Hilton Hotel and ask how tall the building is and all that stuff. Now, the other impersonization is is the one, for example, of uh, Ralph. The second most important, in my view, is probably Ralph Leon Yates. And Ralph Yates, two days before the assassination. Oswald appears at work, as usual, uh, in the book depository. He worked from 8 to 4.45 in the afternoon, and Oswald is working at the book depository. Well, at 10 o'clock in the morning at the Dobbs House restaurant, which is on Beckley, a couple of blocks from from Harvey Oswald's rooming house, you've got Lee Oswald sitting in the cafe, and you've got J.D. Tippett, Officer Tippett, sitting in the same cafe. And Oswald makes a big scene that his eggs are cold, his coffee's cold, and that's just What's going on here? What are, Tippett and Oswald. And Tippett's seven miles out of his district at this point at 10 o'clock in the morning. He's supposed to be on duty. So that's interesting. But then half an hour later, you've got that same young man appearing at an entrance hitchhiking on the Thornton Freeway. And a man named Ralph Leon Yates picks him up in his pickup truck. Oswald gets in. He's got a long package. He tells his driver it's curtain rods. And he says, well, you can put him in the back. And he says, no, 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 I want to, I'll hang on to him. As they're driving, Lee Oswald, now this is Lee, not Harvey. Harvey's working at the book depository. It's 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning. And Oswald shows uh, Ralph Yates a picture of him holding a rifle. 
And then he starts talking, do you think you could shoot somebody from a high-rise building with a gun like this? Yates says, you know, well, yeah, I guess so if you had a scope and you were a good shot. And then Lee Oswald talks about the president's parade. And this is, you know, two days before the assassination. He drops the guy off at Elman Houston, right across the street from the book depository. Yates turns left, drives over to Irving, Texas, and tells his fellow co-worker, Dempsey jo- whose name is Dempsey Jones, about the strange man he picked up and uh, is a hitchhiker. And the FBI, of course, interviewed Yates, interviewed Dempsey Jones, thought Yates was crazy, and, and so on. They just brush it off. That's probably the second most important person, is it, you know, personification, pers- whatever, of, of Oswald, impersonization of Oswald. So, you know, you start seeing these things and you start realizing what's going on. But then most people stop at that. Okay, you had somebody impersonating Oswald at this place, this place, this place. Hey, when did it start? They don't ask that question. When did it start? Well, let's see. How far do you want to go back? Hoover sent a letter to the State Department that said maybe somebody's impersonating Oswald or using Oswald's passport to Oswald passports. When I talked to Philip Corso, his good friend was Francis Knight, who was head of the passport department for the whole United States. And Francis Knight told Corso that uh, after the assassination, that two passports had been issued to different Lee Harvey Oswalds. So, you know, you, you, you hear these little bits of information and they start to make sense. All right, fine. Then you see that Oswald was arrested on Lake Pontchartrain in 1962 when Oswald was in Russia. And then you've got reports of sheriff in uh, two, different, two different occasions in Florida filling up his boat, not having any uh, money to pay for the fuel. And some guy named Reuben comes and pays for the fuel while, Oswald's, uh, while Harvey Oswald's in Russia. Then you look at the thing which I spent a lot of time on with Oswald being in New York City and hanging around with this friend. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name now. It's all in my, you know, my write-ups online. And then there was that actor who appeared on the Barney Miller show, that detective. I, can you remember the name? Oh, I, I can't yeah. remember the name. No, but I know you wrote an article specifically on that, right? Yeah, yeah. And th- those guys spent time together, taking photographs together when Oswald was in Russia. And then you go back before Russia. And you've got the, the McBride thing with Oswald in Japan, Oswald in New Orleans at the same time. Then you've got the problem with Oswald being in Japan, Harvey Oswald in Japan. Harvey, there are actually photographs that Oswald took of fighter jets in Taiwan at the same time Oswald, Lee Oswald was in Japan. He went to the hospital on numerous occasions in, in September and October when Oswald's in Taiwan, Harvey Oswald's in Taiwan. All right. That's 1958. Go back further. 1957. Well, that's when when uh, see, McBride and um, Oswald, Lee, Harvey Oswald, were together when Sputnik was launched. That's October 4th, 1957. They went to the Boris Gudunov Opera in New, in New Orleans. And I happen to have a copy of that brochure. October 12th, 1957. McBride's dad was one of the ushers at the uh, the opera house. So they got in for free. <laughs> All right, you go back further, and you go back to 1956, and that's when you get into to what I realized is there were so many duplications. You, you have to try and figure out what happened, all right? And what you've got is you've got two jacks. Oswald's working for two jacks, and of course, you know, two jacks was friends with all those, Bannister, Ferry, all those people. And so I could never figure it out. And then I read 
a little bit. It was one sentence about Frank D. Benedetto, his testimony before the House Select Committee. And that one little sentence that got me started on a month's worth of work that made perfect sense. What Frank D. Benedetto said was, Oswald worked for us for a year to a year and a half. Wait a minute. A year to a year and a half. But the Warren Commission said he worked there three months, November, December, and well, one week in death. Two months in one week. November, December, uh, 1955, one week, 1956. And something's wrong. So I flew to New Orleans and I met with Frank, a nice guy, about my height, about six foot. And I asked him all kinds of questions. How tall was Oswald? About my height, maybe, maybe a little shorter. Interesting. Because six months earlier, eight months earlier, before he went to, um, in the eighth grade, he was, uh, what was it, five foot two measured on the Beauregard school records. And now he's almost six foot one year later. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So this lady named Gloria Callahan, who was the secretary at Two Jacks, she remembered that Oswald was there when she had her child. She said, it's 1956. Well, wait a minute. You say that Oswald worked at Two Jacks in the summer of 1955 to the fall of 1956 when he quit to join the Marines. Yeah, that's about right, Frank said. So then I remember Robert Oswald. He got out of the Marines in July of 1955. He stayed with his brother and his mother at 126 Exchange in New Orleans for a week. And what does Robert Oswald tell the Warren Commission? What does he tell the Warren Commission? Well, when I spent a week with him in 1955 after I got out of the Marines, he was working for an import-export company. He talked about shipping packages to Hong Kong or various places around the world. Really? Okay. That matches with what Frank Benedetto said. And Frank said he quit to join the Marines September-ish of 1956. Well, all that's fine, but there's one big problem. There's, there's several big problems. The first big problem is that Oswald Harvey attended Warren Easton High School in September and part of October in 1955 at exactly the same time Oswald's working, Lee is working at Two Jacks. Whoa, really? And for those who don't know, what's Two Jacks? Two Jacks is an import-export company in New Orleans. had about 18 employees, and they were, they officed in the Sandlin building in New yep. Orleans. Yeah, right. So here I'm talking to Frank Benedetto face-to-face. I'm sorry, Frank bought the – when Mr. Two Jack died, Frank bought the company uh, from Two Jacks' widow, and he he ran Two Jacks. This, I met Mr. Benedetto in, I think, 1997-ish. I think it was 97 and two Jack died years earlier. So Frank had been running the company for a long time. All right. And then I, I happened to mention, do you know Nick Mazza? And he said, sure, Nick and I are good friends. Really? Do you know where his office was? He laughed at me. He said, yeah, <laughs> right below where we're standing. I said, J.R. Michael's company is in the floor below you in this building? He says, yeah, Nick and I went to lunch every day. Oh, my God. So... <laughs> Naturally, I went to talk to Nick after I talked to Frank downstairs. And I said, do you remember anything about Lee Harvey Oswald? He says, no. He said, the FBI showed up a day or two after the assassination, told me that Lee Harvey Oswald worked here. I said, no, he didn't. They said, yes, they they did. Go check your records. So I checked my records. And we had one check made payable to Lee Harvey Oswald. And before I gave it to the FBI, I copied it. Is there any way, Nick, that you could give me a copy of that check? 
<laughs> he gave me a copy of it, which is online now. So what you got there is Lee Oswald working at two jacks. Harvey's working one floor below with Nick Mazza and J.R. Michaels at the exact same time. Now, let's go one step further. Warren Commission, without any documentation whatsoever, says that Oswald worked at the Pister Dental Laboratory for a few months in the spring of 1956. They have no documentation whatsoever. The FBI showed up at uh, at, uh, Two Jacks, uh, I'm sorry, Pister Dental Laboratory uh, the day after the assassination, Monday after the assassination, talked to everyone, the owners, the employees, told them they were not to talk to anyone, say anything about anything. Well, I interviewed Linda Faircloth, who was the president of the Fister Dental Laboratory in the 1990s. Now, Linda, long before she knew me, Fister is a nationwide company, and she was chosen to give a little background history on her laboratory in New Orleans. So she knew that from, you know, people that worked in the laboratory, the owners, that Oswald had worked for Fisters. So she did a little history on Oswald, talked to the people that were there, and gave a talk years before she met me and told her people in the Fister Dental Laboratory uh, in the yearly convention that Oswald had worked for the Fister Dental Laboratory. And then that, you know, caused me to try and get a hold of other people who were still alive and who remembered. One of them, of course, was Paul McBride. Paul McBride's good friend. Oh, God, what was his name? Harry. I'm sorry. Too many names to remember. Uh, Yeah, no problem at all, right? And plus, it's all in your book. It's all in your book, also on your website. But Well, the point um, of it is, the the point I'm trying to make here is, the point I'm trying to make here is that 99% of the people who accept the impersonization of Oswald in the months preceding the Kennedy assassination, they've got a mind block. If there was somebody impersonating Oswald before the assassination, why don't you go back and see when the first impersonization happened? And you go back every single year. Now, what you and I are talking about now is 1955 when this guy's 15 years old, 15 and 16 years old. If you go look, and that's when you start to, to, to really understand what's going on. And then when you reread testimony of people like Marguerite Oswald's best friend, Myrtle Evans, knew her for 25 years. Her husband, Julian, called Myrtle Evans beautiful. I mean, there's nobody in the world that can look at Marguerite Oswald, the one that we know, and say she could ever be beautiful. She's heavy set and ugly. But be that as it may, when the Oswalds came back, they were living in Myrtle Evans' house for a year to a year and a half. That's good. Let's go talk to Myra DeRoos, because Myra DeRoos was Oswald's homeroom teacher. And I interviewed Myra. Her interview's on YouTube. Anybody can look at it. Myra DeRoos talks about knowing Harvey. And when when Robert Grodin and I interviewed her in New Orleans, she kept saying the same thing, the same thing. Harvey, 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 Harvey. I said, whoa, wait a minute. Why do you call him Harvey? Myra said, that's what he told me to call him. He came in with a folder. He handed it to me. I said, your name is Lee Harvey Oswald. How do you want to be called? He said, call me Harvey. She always called him Harvey. Now we're back to 1954 in the springtime. Harvey Oswald, best friends with Ed Vobel. A piano fell on on Oswald. Vobel came running out of the basement of the cafeteria. Miss DeRoos, Miss DeRoos, the piano fell on Harvey. So they took the piano off. She took him to the monolepry clinic. Then she took Harvey home. Where did you take him? Oh, I took him to one, this place on Exchange Alley. It was really, 
nasty, trash everywhere. Now, what the story that I just told you means very little unless you lay it side by side with the testimony of Myrtle, Myrtle and Julian Evans, who said Oswald was living at 1454 St. Mary's in her apartment building for a year to a year and a half. The woman that was her good friend for 20 years. At the same time, Harvey's living on exchange. Then when Harvey leaves exchange is when Lee Oswald moves into exchange and starts to work for two jacks. Now we're back to 1954. Go back to 1953. Read Robert Oswald's testimony very clearly. Oh, one more thing. Robert Oswald told the Warren Commission that his brother attended Stripling Junior High School. Well, I know that's impossible because Oswald attended junior high only in New Orleans. But here's a guy who I interviewed, Frank Cudlady, the assistant vice principal, who said Oswald absolutely attended Stripling in the ninth grade in the fall of, 19, in fall of 1954. How do you know that, Frank? Well, I gave Oswald's records to the FBI. At the same time, Lee is attending Beauregard in the ninth grade, and he got into a fistfight with Johnny Newmeyer. Johnny Newmeyer supposedly knocked his tooth out. Looks like he's got a knockout tooth in that classroom photo in the Life magazine with Oswald standing on the front cover holding a rifle. Just open it up. You can look at it. And when I showed Myra a picture of that guy, that big husky kid in the, in the, sitting in the classroom, she says, that's not, that's not Harvey. That's not Harvey. So we're back to 1953. Then you go back to 1952 and read Robert Oswald's testimony again. Read John Pick's testimony where he was shown photographs, photographs of Oswald in the New York Zoo. And Pick tells the Warren Commission, that's not my brother. The Warren Commission attorney says, wait a minute, this fellow at the Bronx Zoo is not your brother? No, sir. Whoa. And then what do they do? They show Pick photographs of Oswald handing out literature, fair play for Cuba literature in New Orleans. And Pick says, that's not my brother. Bingo. Pick's right. It's not his brother. That's Harvey handing out the literature, and that's Harvey standing in front of the Bronx Zoo. And then you got Robert Oswald. Uh, you got Pitt telling uh, the Warren Commission that Oswald attended a school a few blocks from his apartment in Manhattan when the Warren Commission says Oswald went to school in the Bronx and truanted. One, one more thing. Read Robert Oswald's testimony. He says his brother was attending junior high school and I, I could have the streets a little bit wrong, 68th or 69th, something like that, and the Grand Concourse. That's in Manhattan. So what's the inference we can draw from that? Lee went to public school 44 in Manhattan. Harvey briefly went to school in the Bronx, truanted, and was put in the youth house. Now let's go one more time. Let's go back to 1953. Oswald's 12 years old, and he's attending Beauregard in New Orleans. He's attending part-time. The school records are in the Warren volumes. And so are records for public school 44 in the Bronx, where Lee Oswald was attending the last of his ninth grade year. Well, I hesitate to interrupt you at all because I, I, I don't know how far back you're going to go right now. But what I wanted well, to no, do, I wanted to give you props. I wanted to give you credit. And my actual, I was hoping to, to get you to talk about Westbrook and Croy, because you seem to be the, the one researcher that really started to nail down them. 
once you start talking, I'm not going to interrupt you. But no, no, no. Uh, the, the, I'll, I'll stop talking about that. All I'm saying is, if people look, the bottom line is this: if you want to understand the whole substance, everything about the Kennedy assassination, you focus on Oswald. Because if you got two Oswalds, going back to 1952 and before, okay. I won't go any further. I'll just tell you the first, the first two Oswald sighting that I have confirmed is 1947. Oswald's eight years old. He's living at San Saba. Lee Oswald's living at 1505 8th Avenue in Fort Worth. All right. You go back further than that. Oswald comes from one of the Eastern Bloc countries as a refugee after World War II. Russian was his native language, Russian and probably Hungarian. Anyway, my whole point is, that people can focus on the number of shots, they can focus on the number of shooters, they can focus on medical evidence, they can focus on who was behind the assassination, who did it, Lyndon Johnson or the Cuban, they can do all that. But the only thing that's going to give you the true answer and answer all of those questions and the, and the cover-up and the reason that the CIA is still withholding documents is Oswald. Okay. How did, how did I get started on Chris? I don't know, how did I get started but... On- you know, I enjoy listening to you. I'm sure anyone else listening to this show will enjoy that. But I do want to help promote your work that is digging up this background of, of Westbrook and Croy, and especially the police car that was already there. It's, some of the staggering things were, uh, you know, in that article you were telling me, when, when the witness says, well, how fast did the policeman get there? He was already there. I mean, for you to help bring this out to saying, well, how could the police already be there at the Tippett crime scene? That's what amazes me all about that. I I understand where you're going. And all it is, is putting together a piece of the puzzle here. It's like me talking to Frank DiBenedetto. His one sentence, one sentence to the House Select Committee, Oswald worked for me for a year to a year and a half. That just blew everything wide open. All right. Well, for me, that's what I was going to ask you. I'll go back to that. I'll say, what was it about Westbrook or Croy that, that one sentence maybe that they, they were in their testimony? What was it, if you recall, that you went, wait a minute? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. The captain of police, a captain, and no, no car is available to take him to the book depository. He walks to the book depository one mile after the president's been shot. I'm sorry, that he could have called, he could have had his dispatcher call any available unit, get back here. Captain Westbrook wants to go. To, that, that's impossible. It, that, that, that bothered me from day one. Another thing that bothered me from day one was Captain Fritz. Oswald was arrested for killing Tippett. But Fritz never, never, never asked Oswald a single question about the Tippett murder. And for 20, 25 years, that question has haunted me. I could not understand that. It didn't make any sense. Westbrook, walking, never made any sense. And then I'm reading the Warren volumes. And what does Captain Fritz say? Warren Commission says, well, when did you start debriefing Oswald? Well, it was about the time, I can't remember if it was before I talked to him or just a few minutes after, but some guy, some, some policeman told me, no, no, I'm sorry. He said, what? Some officer, some officer told me that Oswald had a room on Beckley. I mean, that should have jumped out at every single researcher in the world. Wait a minute. Oswald arrived at the police station, and a few minutes later, a fellow police officer told you that Oswald had a room on Beckley? How in the world would anybody know he lived on Beckley? I mean, 
that is a clear indication that somebody knew about Oswald before the assassination. Now, I don't know who that officer was, but the Warren Commission questioned uh, Gerald Hill several times. Did he say anything about Beckley Street? No, he didn't. They asked the people that took Oswald from the ruin, from the Texas Theater to the police station if he said anything about Beckley. No, he didn't. He never did. But yet one person, one police officer told Fritz outside of Fritz's interrogation room, Oswald had a room on Beckley. Who is that guy? Somebody in the police department knows about Oswald. That's huge. But it's just one little sentence. It's one little sentence that jumped out at me. Maybe it doesn't jump out at other people, but it jumped out at me. All right. So that's in the back of my mind. Westbrook did not walk to the, he, he walked to the book depository. And then I read uh, a transcript, which is, it's by Jim, by Dallas Morning News reporter, Jim Ewell. And this is the basis for me checking right, going right into Westbrook. Jim Ewell talked about uh, Westbrook. Jim Ewell said he and Jerry Hill were driven to the book depository by Officer Jimmy Valentine. He drove him from the police station to the book depository. We've got a picture of Jerry Hill getting out of car 207. 207's right on the door of the car. Jimmy Ewell's in the back seat. Jimmy Valentine's driving. Now, that's one thing. But the most important thing is what Jim Ewell wrote in his essay. And I wish everybody would read it. Because all you got to do is read it and remember it. And then read uh, uh, Westbrook's Warren Commission testimony, and you will find lie after lie after lie. Westbrook doesn't, I don't think Westbrook told a single honest story in his testimony. All right. Jim Ewell said, we got into, we got into, um, well, I'm sorry. I want to back up. The reason I want to back up is because I want to do this in chronological order. Because if I skip around, people are going to get confused. So here you got car 207. All right. Now that's about 1245. Five, 10 minutes later, you see car 207 going by Beckley Street. Well, with two people in it, who could this be? Who could this be? Jerry Hill went up on the top floor, um, in the book depository. Jimmy Valentine went on the top floor, and you got pict- I've got pictures of Jimmy Valentine on the top floor. What happened to this car? What happened to car 207? Well, then you got Croy's testimony. And I started really wondering about Croy after I learned that Croy, through his own testimony, was standing next to Jack Ruby in the basement of the police department when Ruby killed Oswald. What? Croy was standing next to Ruby? Yeah, that's his testimony to the Warren Commission. Whoa, what's going on with Croy? Then you find out there's two people, McWater's bus, that got on the bus looking for Oswald. Two police officers got on the Marcellus bus, not the Beckley bus. The Beckley bus is what Oswald took to and from work every day, went, went right almost to the front, of his, front door of his house, his rooming house and stopped across the street from the book depository. But he took the Marcellus bus. Why would he take the Marcellus bus? Because he was following orders. That's all he was doing was following orders. So I looked at Westbrook, and I tried to figure out what he could be doing. Then I read uh, the testimony of, um, and Westbrook, by the way, told the Warren Commission, uh, he got there, he went on, he he saw uh, Sergeant Stringer on the front, walked to the back, opened the door. Somebody said an officer's been shot in Oak Cliff. Bingo. We've got the time that Westbrook first showed up 
at the book depository, 1.20 in the afternoon. So where's Westbrook? From five minutes after Kennedy shot until 1.20, where, where is he? Almost 45 minutes. Where is he? Where's Croy? Croy told the Warren Commission that he was in his car. President been shot. He drives past the courthouse on, on uh, Houston Street, asks a couple officers, you guys need any help? No, we don't need any help. So then he just decides, well, I'm going to go home and change clothes and take my estranged wife to Austin's barbecue for lunch. I mean, who in the world would leave Dealey Plaza at that time and go have lunch with their wife? That's just the most important event in Dallas history, maybe in the history of the country in the 20th century. And this guy just blows it off like Do you nothing. need any help? No, we're good. Yeah, exactly. No, we're good. When the Dallas police are calling all of their officers and tell them to, you know, come on in. We need you right now, right now, right now. So anyway, I did not piece together Croy and Westbrook immediately. I knew there were two officers that got on the Mercedes bus looking for Oswald, but Oswald had just left the bus just moments earlier. And how many side notes do I get to talk about here? I mean, you've got, you've got Oswald boarding the bus in the middle of the street, pounding on the door. McWaters lets Oswald on his bus. And a woman, a blonde woman, gets on the bus same time as Oswald. Three or four or five minutes later, Oswald gets off, gets a transfer. The woman gets off and also gets a transfer. Oswald walks two blocks, three blocks to the t- taxi cab. He's ready to get in the taxi. He gets in the front seat. And a woman says, can you call me a taxi? And Oswald says, you can have this one. No, the driver can call me one. Is she following Oswald? There's a pregnant woman in the Texas theater that Oswald sat next to for a few minutes, according to Butch Burroughs. That woman got up and left the theater because when the police arrived a few minutes later, that woman was not anywhere to be found. So, you know, I don't know if that was the same woman, but you've got to wonder about it, don't you? And I think that Oswald was being looked on with eyes 24 hours a day in the days preceding the assassination. That's my feeling. The uh, All right. the little thing that, that, that caught my attention was that he is the he's in charge of personnel. And in yeah. the testimony, they say, who called in? Where did you get the jacket from? Some officer, I don't know his name. That's why people should read Jim Ewell's statements and read the Warren Commission testimony. Westbrook can't remember the name of anybody in Oak Cliff. And Jim... Let, let, let me continue here. All right. So what happens, I'm going to probably have to get out of line here a little bit. What happens is um, I'm going to skip the car 207 for just a minute. Oh, that's okay. What I happens, mean, you, you've already gone through this and in, in, in your article. I just liked it on an overview that, that you talked about. Your, I, I just want to help promote that your work has really brought out Westbrook and Croy and everyone should read every detail that you have. You don't have to relive every detail right now. But I just well, was... no, no, no. It's, no, it's it, it's important. Okay, go ahead. It's very ahead. important. All right. Uh, okay. In the first place, Westbrook. Okay. I hate to skip around, but I hope people can follow me because it's just important. Uh, Jim Mule, for example, and this is skipping around, and I hate this, but I want people to try and understand how I'm putting these pieces together. Jim Mule talked about riding with Westbrook after Tippett was shot. Mule got in Westbrook's unmarked dark blue police car, and they went to see this, and they went to see that. Westbrook parked his car directly in front of the Texas Theater. All right, we've got pictures of Westbrook's car in front of the Texas Theater. It's an unmarked car. There's no siren, nothing on top. That's Westbrook's car. 
And Ewell confirms that by saying they brought Oswald out and they put him in the back seat, in the middle of the back seat. He took my seat. I arrived in that car sitting in the back seat and they put him in that seat and took him to police headquarters. Well, nobody knows. Nobody knows that Oswald was taken to police headquarters in Westbrook's unmarked car. Okay. But according to Jim Ewell, that's what happened. So, and just Here we go. For, for people who don't know, tell us who Jim Ewell is. Dallas Morning News reporter. Right, yeah. All right, now, that means that Westbrook's dark blue unmarked police car was at the book depository. How did it get there? Come on, people. Westbrook drove his car. He didn't go through, uh, walk to the book depository. He and Croy got in his unmarked police car, and they drove it to the book depository. They got out. What did they do? In my opinion, I can't prove it. Those are the two officers who got on the Marcellus bus looking for Oswald. Why do I think that? Because somebody in that Dallas Police Department knew exactly where Oswald was and where he was supposed to be and where he was going. And one of those people was Westbrook, 100%. That's why I think Westbrook was on that Marcellus bus looking for Oswald. He's not there. So then Westbrook thinks, what in the world's going on here? In Westbrook's mind, the Marseilles bus is supposed to stop across the street from the Gloco station. Oswald's supposed to get off the bus, and Tippett's going to drive him to the Texas theater. Okay, now we got two problems. Tippett is not going to take Oswald, meet Oswald. Oswald's not on that bus. And now where is Oswald? So Westbrook and Croy get in car 207. They want to find Oswald. They've got to find Oswald. The plan's broken up here. They drive by. Uh, 1026 Beckley, they honk the horn, Oswald comes out. They drive Oswald to the Texas Theater. How do we know that? We can't prove it. But Butch Burroughs said Oswald arrived at that theater between 101 and 107. At 101, 102, Oswald's standing on the corner at Beckley and Zhang. Westbrook picks up Oswald and drives him to the alley behind the Texas Theater. Oswald walks through a little fire escape lane, three foot wide, goes from the alley to the Jefferson Boulevard. He turns right, walks 70 or 80 feet, buys a ticket from Julia Postal, goes inside, sits down next to Jack Davis. When the, before the, the movie starts, the movie starts at 120. There's the credits and the, you know, the news stuff. He sits with other people. Then he goes out at 115 and buys popcorn from Butch Burroughs. Now, I ask you a simple question. If Oswald had not purchased a ticket, don't you think, Butch Burroughs would have said, hey, can I see your ticket stuff? Butch sold him popcorn. He knows the guy gave him a ticket. Oswald goes back in, sits down, sits next to the pregnant lady. The movie starts. Okay? So Oswald's in that theater at 105, 107. So who is shooting Tippett? Who's shooting Tippett? So you got car 207. All police cars are down at the Kennedy assassination. But four blocks away, in my view, Westbrook drives down that alley, continues down the alley, four blocks, and turns in left between those two houses next to Virginia Davis. And who is blocking the drive? Who has parked directly in front of the driveway so that he can see his captain when his captain arrives? Tippett. And who's talking to Tippett through the car window? Lee Oswald. How do we know it was Lee Oswald? you got people who saw Oswald walking towards 10th and Patton from four blocks westward, Jack, two blocks from Jack Ruby's apartment. 
he passes by the 10th Street Barbershop, passes by a cafe, passes by a couple of uh, William Arthur Smith, William Lawrence Smith, Jimmy Burt, you know, continues to walk. He talks to Tippett through the car window. He gets out, he shoots him. Who's in that car? If that is police car between those two houses, if it's not car 207, who is it? I can't prove it was car 207. But somebody got out of that car and went and looked at Tippett's body. And Oswald came back and put a bullet in his head. That car then drives straight back to the book depository, parks. And what does Westbrook do? He waits to hear that Tippett's been shot. And then he gets in his own unmarked police car and he drives with Jim Ewell. And where does he drive? Does he drive? He tells the Warren Commission he drove to the scene of the Tippett murder. No, he didn't. He drove to the parking lot and just happened to find Oswald's jacket. He planted that jacket. Then there's the two wallets. Then there's the two wallets, Lynn. And you got Westbrook showing two wallets, on, you know, on film at 10th and Patton. And then that wallet disappears. And then start, and then in my mind, things started making sense. Look, imagine, imagine you're Westbrook and you show a wallet at 10th and Patton with two identifications. There's two cards in there. One's Alec, A-L-E-K. One of them's A-L-E-X, Heidel. Alex and Alec Heidel. FBI agent Robert Barrett sees that wallet. Sergeant Owens and Captain Doherty are filmed holding that wallet. So Barrett says, the last time I saw that wallet was in Westbrook's hands. All right. Now, people, police officers at 10th and Patton and FBI agent Captain Doherty, they know about the second wallet. They know know there's a wallet. Now, Westbrook takes this wallet. And at some point, he finds out Oswald had a wallet in his back pocket. It's laying on the interrogation room in Captain Prince's interrogation. Now, Westbrook's got a second wallet. What in the world does Westbrook do with a second wallet? The only thing he can do, same thing he did with the jacket. He just gives it to Fritz, says, hey, man, one of my guys found this wallet. I don't know what it means, but here it is. And Captain Fritz looks at that thing, and he thinks, oh, for Christ's sakes, a throwdown wallet. And at that point, in my opinion, just my opinion, Captain Fritz knew that Oswald had not killed Tippett. Somebody was trying to frame him. And, of course, we know that person was Westbrook. So my question of 25 years, why didn't Fritz ask Oswald a single question about the Tippett murder was answered. When Oswald was being questioned, there were Secret Service people. There was a postal inspector sometimes. uh, You know, there were police officers in there. Um, You know, if Oswald would have been pressured, why did you shoot the officer? How did you walk to the Texas theater? How did you walk to 10th and Patton? he might've just exploded and said, look, I work for the FBI. I work for the CIA. I think Fritz was scared to death to ask Oswald a single question. Fritz wanted Oswald out of there, get him over to the sheriff's office. That's my opinion. That's why I think that Fritz never asked Oswald a single question about the Tippett murder. Now, the last thing you see is Westbrook's car and Jim Yule, Jim Yule talking about that. So you got Jim Yule saying it was Fritz's car parked directly in Fritz was, I'm sorry, not Fritz, Westbrook, excuse me. Westbrook was the first person to arrive at the Texas theater. And Oswald was brought out of his car and taken to the police station. And it's funny. There were four people in that car that accompanied Oswald to the police station. Each one of them wrote a report 
We were in a squad car. We were in this car. We're gonna, not one person said they were in <laughs> Captain Westbrook's unmarked police car. Jerry Hill was interviewed after Oswald was brought in the police station on camera. And Jerry Hill started telling the police, or the, the press, the, the, the press, well, he's been to Russia. He's got a Russian wife. Uh, he supports Castro. And one of the reporters said, how do you know that? And Jerry Hill said, Westbrook told me. So what people don't know now is at least they hope they do. Oswald was never shown the jacket. It wasn't his jacket. It was Lee's jacket. But he's never shown that jacket. Westbrook took that jacket. Westbrook filled out a report on that jacket. And the original report was in the Dallas police files. What shows up in the Warren report is the same report, but there's a strip of paper across the top covering up Westbrook's name as the person who reported the jacket. And Oswald never saw the jacket. The latest thing that I came to find out, which is just a few months ago, was I am convinced that Jack Ruby was in that theater when Oswald was arrested. George Applin told the Warren Commission, there was a man beside him, but he didn't say who it was. Years later, he told Earl Goltz the whole story. And Ruby, according to George Applin, was sitting next to him in the Texas theater when Oswald was arrested. That is so important. Now, what do you think, it's 60 years later, the government, and specifically, I think, backlash from CIA is holding documents. What does that mean to you? I mean, I know what it means to me, but what do you make of that? They're covering up something. What's the one thing that they're covering up? What's the most important thing they're covering up? It's the identity of Oswald. If the public knew that Harvey Oswald was not Lee Harvey Oswald, bingo. That's what the CIA's been covering up. What else can they cover up? What else exposes them and ties them to the assassination like two different Oswalds? I mean, please, Lynn, tell me. Well, an intelligence a technique of having a double of having a plant, how, how, you know, and maybe this isn't the only time this was used. No, of course it's not. Look, there were tens of thousands. If you'll read the first part of my essay, the very first one, it's the early, early years of Oswald. There's a guy named Frank Weisner in the CIA who was responsible for organizing uh, the import. I, I, I might have the wrong words. The importation, you know, the bringing refugees uh, to the United States, children to the United States, and they, 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 you know, they had, they had lived somewhere, put them with foster families. And 10 years later, when these eight and nine year old kids grow up and they're teenagers, they still have their, 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 their native language, whether it's Czech or Polish or Lithuanian or, or Bulgarian or Hungarian or whatever. And we're in a cold war with Russia. So these young people who've grown up and had a good life in the United States just might help us and be, you know, translators. Maybe we can train them, send them back to their home country as fake spies. I don't know. But this is what happened to Oswald. Yeah, and I think there's some people that are suspicious of Marina that the Russians played the same game with them. Sure they did. No, look, look, that's real simple. You, you try to understand. Look, when I started this thing, I read the Warren report. I think, okay, that's what happened. That's what happened. That's what happened. And 30 years later, I read things with a different point of view. That's what you say happened. Now let's try and find out what really happened. And Marina told everybody 
that Oswald spoke with a spoke good Russian and spoke with a Russian accent. So Anita Zeiger, who was you know very nice woman, she's a member of the some kind of national choir of Argentina, Buenos Aires, something like that. Um, very kind, very nice woman, and spent two days with her. And we were over. Uh, we, we met in a cafe. We went to a cafe to eat lunch every day. Uh, we were having uh, lunch, and uh, she, now she spoke Spanish and she spoke Russian. She didn't speak any English, but I had my friend Eduardo, um, who spoke very good English, very good Spanish, and Eduardo would translate. And you know, I'm sitting there thinking, God, this is a woman who spent a year and a half living next door to Oswald with her parents, her sister. Uh, her mother was still alive in the hospital at that time. And her sister is living in Florence, Italy. And, uh, you know, well, and she actually, when she took us to her house, she showed us photographs that she'd actually smuggled out of Russia. And some of them were the same photographs that we see in the Warren volumes, you know, Russia, Oswald fishing or something like that. And so I asked her just, it's kind of like if I asked you, Lynn, um, Len, how many times have you been married? And you looked at me with a surprised look and said, what, what? Well, that's the expression that I got from Anita Zeiger. Uh, we're just sitting there talking normally. I said, well, Anita, how old did Oswald speak Russian? And she raised her eyebrows and looked at me surprised. And she says, what? He didn't, he didn't speak any Russian. And that kind of froze my mind. Now, wait a minute. Marina said he spoke perfect Russian with a Russian with a Baltic accent. And you're telling me that he spoke no Russian? Wait, wait, wait. He didn't say, you know, niet, gaspidania, nothing like that? No. My father interpreted for him. My father spoke English. So he never spoke any English that you ever heard? No. Oh, boy. Well, I went back to the hotel, and now you got one woman saying one thing and one woman saying another thing. Then I started thinking about Marina. I started thinking about, did she speak English in Russia? Now, Dick Russell called me one time, and he's going to have a, an interview in Cape Cod with Robert Webster, the first American defector. And Dick called me, and he said, would you like me to ask Robert Webster any questions? And I said, yes, just one. When he talked with Marina, did they talk in English? How good was her English? Dick called me back, and he said, Webster told me that she did speak English, broken, with a heavy accent, but she spoke English. Okay. Now you've got an 18-year-old girl in Russia speaking English, and she meets the first defector in Moscow. Short time later, she meets the third American defector in Minsk. And what people don't understand about this, and they need to just read the documents, they met at a dance. They were supposed to meet, or uh, Oswald was going to call her, and they were going to get together the following Friday. Well, Oswald was in the hospital. I think adenoids or some, some operation. So she visits Oswald every day while he's recovering, three or four days. When they get out of the hospital, now think about this. What do they know each other? 10 days, 11, 12 days? When they get out of the hospital, they apply for a marriage license. They didn't wait six months, six weeks. They applied when they got out of the hospital. When Marina comes to the United States, she pretends not to speak any English. But yet, when she's being interviewed with the Warren Commission, She's talking about living on Elsbeth Street, and she's talking about a conversation she had with the owner. And she told the Warren Commission, well, Oswald told me not to speak uh, any English because people would wonder where I learned English. And the Warren Commission attorney said, oh, wait a minute. Y you talked in English to you know, 
The landlord like that? She said, yes. Now, that's interesting. The Warren Commission attorney knew that she had learned English. She learned English in Russia. She sent to Mary Oswald. Of course, she's a spy. Would she admit it? <laughs> Never. Well, 60 years later, the files are not open, and it's because they're hiding something. The background of that is the murder of John Kennedy, and the details are things that you have come up with in uh, your research books and many good articles. Well, Lynn, I, I just want to ask the audience one question. What could the CIA be hiding that's more important than Oswald's identity? I mean, do you think they're going to name the shooters? You think they're going to name the people that set this thing up? Not a chance. What? Again, I'll, I'll ask the same question. What is so important that the CIA is covering up? Yeah, that's a good observation because that kind of stuff wouldn't be on paper. But every all this other uh, background could have a paper trail. Well, it does have a paper trail. The, the Assassination Records Review Board saw a file in the House, House Un-American Activities Committee in New York and with the name Margaret, Os Margaret Oswald. And they asked to see that file, and it was denied. They couldn't see it. No, I'm saying if, uh, if, for instance, if it was Alan Dulles and people sitting around Sullivan Cromwell and big business in America, and, and they all at their businessmen's meetings saying, that guy's got to go, that kind of talk wouldn't be in any paper trail. But no, like no. you say, if they have no. a doubles, a whole operation, they want two sets of records. So if people in the Soviet Union try to have a mole and do dig up some background, they will find stuff that would substantiate, or if they put different records in different folders, then they know where the leak is coming from, you know? It's all of interest, but it's, uh, it's a, really, a real failing that the American justice system hasn't helped, helped uh, citizens find out what really happened, because uh, the truth, I think, is so uncomfortable. Uh, like uh, James Douglas... Jim, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not only the truth... Uh, look, Kennedy's just the beginning. You, 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 whether we like it or not, we've got Robert Kennedy to deal with, we've got Martin Luther King to deal with, you know, somebody shot Reagan. I mean, all these things, the 9-11 thing, I mean, all these things have, you know, are, are formulated in, 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 in similar ways as the CIA has been doing since the 1950s. I mean, you can make all kinds of uh, excuses, all kinds of theories about why this was done. Uh, they, they didn't like Kennedy, they didn't like the Federal Reserve, so whatever. But that's really secondary what's that's really secondary our whole existence for the past 50 years has been world police a war here a war there a war here a war there and how many of those so-called wars were instigated by the cia the gulf of tonkin did the north vietnamese really shoot at us or was that some cia people in little boats shooting at us that the cia said was the north vietnamese i mean everything that's happened whether it's the, the deposing Mossadegh in, in Iran and putting the Shah of Iran in, who people hated, or whether it's, you know, Guatemala, Nicaragua, whatever. I mean, the CIA has set these things up time and time again. And all, Kennedy's just another one of them. They set it up. Make, make it look like, you know, Castro did it. Make it look like Cuba did it. We want to go into Cuba. We want to have a war with Cuba. We want to take over Cuba. Let's make it appear that, uh, that Cuba was involved. Let's send Oswald to Mexico. See if we can get him a visa to uh, to Cuba. Uh, you know, let's send him down to Robert McEwen, see if he can buy raffles from McEwen. I mean, the CIA has set all these things up for 50 years, and we're still doing it. We still got a war in Ukraine. 
Where's our next war? Supporting the Israelis? Okay, fine. Where's our next war? Taiwan? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Just, Something's got to give. But it's, look, Kennedy had it right 50 years ago. You've got to get rid of the CIA. He had it right. And until you do, we're going to continue to have all... Look, you go to some of these foreign countries, Southeast Asia, for example, they don't have inflation like we do. When, when, when I was very young, my parents bought a new house, way more money than they could afford, $35,000. Can you imagine what that house is worth now? I mean, when I started building houses, they were $60,000. Now they're four and $500,000 house, same house. That is the result of one thing, too much money printing. Why? To support these stupid wars, these endless wars. And it's gotten worse in the past 10 years. It's just nobody pays any attention to the budget deficit anymore. It's just going crazy. I mean, when does it end? You tell me. Yeah. You know, in Canada, we have something, a carbon tax and all that. And people are starting to debate exactly where does this money go? Like, how does it help our climate? And then somebody made the point that the U.S. military is the number one carbon polluter, you know, carbon dioxide and, and pollutants in the world. And if Canada or the UK were to drop to all these demands by 2050, they would only reduce the footprint like 2% for trillions of dollars. And you go, well, why should we spend trillions of dollars when the US military is the number one? Until you stop that, forget about it. it you know, it's not yeah, going to make you gotta, Look, you've got to stop China. You've got to stop India. You've got to stop all the, this, every, everywhere in South America. You've got to stop all this stuff everywhere in Africa. I mean, the United States putting money into climate change is not going to make a darn bit of difference in the world, in the world, in, you know, in the whole cycle of the world. We've got so much. It's just. Uh. Well, John, I really appreciate the last uh, couple of articles. I urge everyone to read uh, anything at your website. You'll find something new. I always do. I just, I always do. And I think I know a fair bit about the topic, but I don't know everything. And um, uh, I'm just, I'm, it's actually, you know, pleasing to learn something. So what does it all mean? It's like pieces of a puzzle. We're putting it together. I think I have a preconceived notion at the end. It's going to end up with a picture of the building of the CIA and black budgets and the people that fund the Defense Department. So I'm looking that way with a flashlight, you know. But um, some of the details, like Westbrook and Croy, you know, how did Ruby even get let in? Uh, what about the, you know, everybody sees the car in the photos in front of the uh, uh, theater, but, you know, you never think, oh, yeah, that's an unmarked car he's getting into. And, and you know, uh, so many things like the testimony that I haven't read everything, but then when I read your research, you print it there, and then you can see uh, what these people are saying, and you go, well, that, that's a lie. There's no way. I mean, the guy was um, in charge of personnel. He would he would know everyone by names, wife's names, you know? I don't remember who gave... who I don't remember the officer. Well, but, but look, what... The reason Westbrook is important is, yes, he's, he was absolutely a co-conspirator. No question about it. Now, let's go one step further. Westbrook, you know, the Warren Commission wrote a letter, which is on the website, to Curry. Please 
determine the whereabouts of car 207 at one o'clock on November 22nd. Now, of all the people, what, look, Curry is in charge of the whole Dallas police. Do they have a department of internal affairs? Do they have an investigative department? Sure they do. Why in the world would not Curry get the Department of Internal Affairs to interview every one of those people that had anything to do with car 207? And that would be Jimmy Valentine. When you, when you drop that car off at 1245 or 1250 at the book depository, who'd you give the keys to? Where'd you go? They didn't do it. They didn't do it. Who did do it? Nobody. But I'll tell you what happened. Westbrook, in my opinion, there's a letter. It's a letter, just a letter. Interview of, they got to understand, this is an undated letter, unsigned letter. It's just typing on a piece of paper. And the, the, the paper reads, Jimmy Valentine interview. Jimmy Valentine was interviewed, and he said he drove the car to the book depository, and he went straight uh, into the building where, where the shooting happened, and he was there all afternoon. That's what it says. And then the person who was in charge of investigating where car 207 was was Captain Westbrook, the man who drove the car in the first place. Now, Curry, Curry, I mean, look, you've got police officers at 10th and Patton. They knew about the wallet. Fritz knew about the wallet. I'm sorry, the two wallets. Is it a stretch of the imagination to think that Curry would soon find out there were two wallets? I don't think so. But it makes me wonder. Maybe Curry did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But one of the things that people have to understand is that was an absolute shutdown. After November 22nd, we never hear about a second wallet. The press never hears about a second wallet. Not a single person who handled, saw, touched that wallet. I don't care if it was Fritz, Captain Doherty, Captain Owens, Croy, uh, Westbrook. They're all interviewed by the Warren Commission. They don't say a single word about that wallet. That is an internal Dallas police cover-up, period. And it started with Chief Curry receiving a letter from Westbrook saying that car 207 was at the book depository all afternoon. That's it. That's cover up. Fritz knew about the second wallet. He said nothing to the Warren commission. I mean, think about that. That is a huge cover up within the Dallas police department. Look, I told you that I think the CIA is hiding Oswald's identity. What's the Dallas police doing by covering up two wallets? Same thing. Yeah. And the further you get into it, the more crooked and dark it reveals itself. Look, I think that Fritz was told the time to bring Oswald down to the basement because Ruby had just arrived. And I think Croy did let him in. And the problem I've had for a long time is looking at the Warren Commission schematic of where Oswald was shot. They identify the area where he was shot as the basement of Dallas police headquarters. That's not true. That's not true. You've got a driveway. One street, to, I forget the street, Commerce Street or whatever it was, one street to the other one. It goes right down the center of two buildings. One building is a city hall. That's where the police headquarters were. The next building is a city annex building. That's where the courtrooms were. 
And the parking area where the police parked all their cars was under the annex area, not the police building. And there's a stairs in the middle of that parking area underneath the annex building that goes directly up the stairs, right by the elevators. That's how you get in. You know, people that just, just go upstairs, walk up there. Ruby, in my opinion, and for what it's worth, it was also the opinion of the Warren Commission attorney, Burt Griffin. Burt Griffin, look, I spent months figuring out how Ruby got into the basement, only to discover this is what the Warren Commission attorney came up with in 1964. So I didn't find out anything new. I just went over the same stuff he did. But when Ruby leaves the Western Union building, all he has to do is walk through a vacant parking lot, maybe 150 feet to the back door of the annex building, another 60 or 70 feet. There's the steps that leads right down to the police parking garage. And in my opinion, there's Croy waiting at the bottom of those steps for Ruby. Ruby walks 30 or 40 feet with Croy beside him. Now he's in place and he shoots Oswald. Well, gee, we've been about an hour and a half already, John. So we could probably talk all night, but I thought I'd only be 30 minutes with you. <laughs> I should have known better. The problem is the details surrounding all of this stuff. You can't tell one story and be done with it because there's too many questions that arise. Right. And well, all I tried. Yeah. Your last one was what, five and a half hours, right? Yeah. Uh, all, all I try. Yeah. All I try and do. All, the only thing I try and do is cover all the bases so that people will see a big picture. If they still have questions, fine. But I'm trying to answer most questions that people would ask in the first place. Now, you asked me what I'm doing. I'm preparing now a five-part series of what we talked about today, the Tippett shooting. And the talk on your radio, parts one, two, and three, that's my voice. That's what will appear on the, what do you call it? The audio. Slide presentation. Yeah. The audio. Yeah. The audio. Yeah. All right. So you're putting, all doing, uh, you're putting video and visuals to it. Yes. Visuals. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be in five parts. It'll be the same thing that people listen to on the radio, on your Black Op radio a few weeks ago, but it'll have more documents than you can imagine. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure everyone is. John, thanks so much for taking time to talk to me tonight. Um, just before we wrap up, is there something you want to add? Because I was just thinking that for now, this is pretty good, but uh, I gave you the opportunity if I forgot to mention something. I guess I just want to give you credit as, as a researcher that really honed in on this Westbrook and Croy and, and, uh, and more research around the Dallas police station. If there's something that I, I should have ended on, and I probably tried to get there, but I got sidetracked. We need to think twice about Captain Fritz and to a lesser degree, Jesse Curry. And it all has to do with that second wallet. If they knew about the second wallet and they were part or knew of the cover-up within the police station of that second wallet, then we have to wonder what else they covered up that we still don't know about. All right. Good note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. And like I say, what I really appreciate about your research is you say, if I'm in error, just point it out. Thank you, Lynn. You have a good evening. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Good night.